0: Uh, will be kind of the final one I'm doing. Um, And to get us started, I thought I'd give you kind of a a picture in your mind that you can think of as we talk about this. Um, Imagine you're back in junior high. Okay, for some of you, that's a long time ago. But take your mind back there. Um, Take yourself back to gym class. Oh, (laughs) people are shaking their heads. Okay. Now imagine the big rubber red balls are set out and it's dodgeball time. And two captains start picking who's going to be on whose team, and all the other kids, you, have to line up on the wall, and one by one, you start getting selected. Now, I see this a little more since I work with junior high kids. Anytime uh, they play a sport, high school as well, usually two captains uh, of equal strength Sometimes they're the worst kids on the team. Sometimes they're the best. Sometimes they're just the most outspoken, will be the captains. And then everybody else lines up. And if you're lined up, you want to be picked first by one of the captains, right? Because it signifies that you are the best player, that you are the number one guy. And if you're not picked first by... Captain number one, then you better get picked first by captain number two. Because all the rest of the kids will know, watch out, I was first picked. And as the line goes down and down, right, you definitely don't want to be picked last. Or be the kid, like there's only one left and the team is up to pick and they go, you can have them, right? If you've ever had that happen, that's the worst. <laughs> you can take them, we don't want them, um, But we, you know, junior high, high school, that's a little awkward, but we still play that game as adults. Uh, We still play the game of wanting distinction, wanting recognition, wanting to be picked first, whether uh, it's for anything. I want to be that person. I want to be the person uh, that is looked at with honor and respect. Um, and so this is the story we're going to uh, talk about today. It's a conversation that Jesus has with two of his disciples um, that deals all about kind of being picked first. Um, so to give you some background, um, I love the background of stories. I, I love kind of reading one passage and then going, what's right before that passage? And so as kind of I've always do, I'm going to tell you a little about the background before we get into the story. This story um, takes place in Mark chapter 10, and it first finds Jesus with his disciples um, heading towards Jerusalem, um, heading towards uh, that that kind of the final entry into the city. Remember where he takes the, the donkey ride and rides into the city? This is happening kind of in the time frame before that as they're heading down to Jerusalem. Um, and as they're heading down that way, uh, Jesus is talking to his disciples, obviously, all along the way, and at several points along the way, um, he tells them something about his death. He starts to predict what's going to happen, and in typical disciple fashion, right, they are misunderstanding. They're not quite sure what he's talking about, but this time, this is the third time that it happens, and it seems like, You should get this. Because he kind of lays it out plainly. He says, the son of man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles. They will mock and spit on him, flog and kill him, and three days later he will rise. There it is, right? Hey guys, we're going to Jerusalem. I'm gonna be kind of taken hostage. They're gonna arrest me. They're going to beat me. I'm going to be handed over. I'm going to be crucified. I'm going to die. And three days later, I'm going to be back. I'm going to rise from the dead. So this this is what he tells them, flat out. And so when we read the story, this conversation happens. And now this next conversation is right after that. And this conversation starts with two disciples named James and John. Now, a little Bible history for you since... I'm always telling my wife stuff like this, like, who's James and John? How much do you know? And then I quiz her on all of it. Growing up, we always did, this is kind of nerdy, my mom always, like we had Bible games instead of like the traditional Monopoly. We'd have like, I don't even, binopoly, uh, Bibleopoly. Uh, but everything, a lot of times there was a, a, a Christian version. And then it had all sorts of trivia on the disciples and other characters. And so a lot of times I know random information. And Melissa will go, where do you know that? I'm like, I, don't, I have no idea Like, why I know this. And some of that's just you know, coming back. So for you parents, some of that stuff sticks after a while. Um, but James and John are two of the disciples. They are um, brothers, brothers. They are fishermen, um, and they're one of the first ones called. When Jesus starts calling disciples, we get him walking along a shoreline, and it says that he first calls Peter and his brother Andrew. And then we're not quite sure if it's right after that, or if they were even maybe on the same boat, it says that he calls John's John and James, and those two are brothers, and they were fishermen as, light, as well. And so we get John and James, and they are called, and as we start to find out about them through the Bible, we find out that they are like two of Jesus' favorite disciples. Yeah, I think Jesus had some favorites. Uh, But we find out that Peter and Andrew, Andrew kind of drops off, but Peter's one of them, and then James and John are known as kind of the three disciples in his core, the core guys, right? He had 12, but these three did all sorts of things with him that the rest weren't privy to, that the rest didn't get to go on. There's one example of when one of the synagogue leaders, his daughter is dying, and they start to go, and she dies actually as they're heading there. And when he goes there, he keeps every all the other disciples out except for Peter, James, and John. And they get to see him Raise this girl from the dead. We have other stories. Remember the transfiguration where he goes up and and some of the disciples see him in all of his glory with Moses and Elijah? Guess what three went to do that? Peter, James, and John. James and John... Got to do all sorts of special things with Jesus. In fact, right before he is arrested, when he goes off to pray, remember, all the disciples kind of go with him. He holds some of them back, but takes James, John, and Peter a little farther with him to pray. These guys got an exclusive, detailed look at Jesus' life. In fact, it even goes as far as who is the disciple that Jesus loves? Right? John. James and John are the disciples. They have a special connection with Jesus that, that the rest don't have. Peter, James, and John get conversations. They see things that the others don't get to see. They are the ones that Jesus put the most time into. Once again, kind of put that in the back of your, back of your thought as, as we're going to get into this story. And then lastly, Jesus gives those three nicknames as well. Right? He calls Peter what? The Rock. Calls James and John. Yeah, good job. Sons of Thunder. Now, it's not really explained why they're called this. Some scholars believe maybe it's the way that these men had been raised, that they were boisterous, that they were loud, that they were fishermen who worked the boats and that often they would be working at night and would have to yell at each other to pull in the nets or to you know, trim the sails. And they would have been out there only with other men most of the time. And so they wouldn't have maybe been the most polite Um, They would have probably not been educated men. So uh, they would have maybe talked in more slang. But whatever the reason, they're called sons of thunder. And maybe it was because they're loud. Or maybe it's because of their attitude. Maybe they were kind of angry guys. We get one example of this in the Bible. And I really didn't remember this until I was doing research. As Jesus is going to Jerusalem at one point, they want to go through Samaria. Samaria. Now, Samaria, if you remember, and the Jews and the Samaritans had issues with each other, right? And so as they go through, he sends his disciples on ahead. Guess who he sends? James and John, probably, and goes check. Hey, can we uh, have a house to sleep in tonight? We're heading to Jerusalem. We need, we need lodging. We need food. Well, the Samaritans don't want him there, and they send him off. Don't stay in our town. And so they come back to Jesus, and to quote they say, should we call fire down from heaven and destroy this city? Sons of thunder. These are guys that are probably a little uh, rash, a little brash, uh, a a little headstrong. um, And Jesus obviously rebukes them uh, for that. um, But just kind of put all that into the back of your head. That's the setup. Jesus has just talked about his death James and John are super close to Jesus, super close to him. They've seen all everything. They've heard everything. And they're also known as kind of these rough guys, these th- sons of thunder. All right. So after all of that, we finally start getting into the story. Um, so Nancy, if you want to put the first slide up, we'll just read part of it. It says, then James and John, then, meaning right after the conversation that they had with Jesus predicting his death, um, this is in Mark 10, uh, 35, it says, then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him. Teacher, they said, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. We'll stop there. James and John come to Jesus and say, hey, We need you to do something for us and I need you to promise before we tell you what it is that you're gonna do it. Have you ever had that done to you? Like, I'm gonna tell you a secret that you can't tell anybody. You need to promise not to tell. Promise? Like, well, I don't know the secret yet, so. Or, you know, don't tell. This happens as siblings a lot. I can remember, don't tell mom and dad I'm gonna tell you this. And you're like, well, what if I need to tell them? Well, no, you already promised. And so they come to Jesus and they go, hey, you know, the disciples that you love, you know, your buddies, we got something, we need something from you, can you promise us that you're gonna do whatever we ask? Okay? Whatever we ask, can you, can you promise that that's what's gonna happen? See, James and John, as, as I kind of, I'm thinking about it, they're taking their position, okay, with Jesus, and exploiting it, right? They are the ones that Jesus loves, and so we can use that and leverage that to get what we want. This happens all t- the time in today's society, right? It's known as insider trading, <laughs> right? Well, as I was thinking, I was like, I don't even really know what insider trading is, and then I start looking it up, and for all of you that are like me that have no idea, and uh, insider trading basically just means that you have information about a certain company that is not made public, and then you use it or exploit it for gain. Hey, this is what Martha Stewart did, remember? If you look up her story, she has money invested in a biotech firm, and just before the FDA comes out and says, oh, your big cancer drug, we're not certifying that, you can't use it, Martha Stewart drops all of her stocks, because she's kind of got word that this is happening from the inside, and so she makes some money off of that by selling before it all dumps. Okay, this happens all the time in large scale, but this also happens at small levels. Um, I am a huge Ohio State fan, national championships, I think, in wrestling and football this year, just so you know, Um, but... Several years ago, it wasn't looking as good. A couple of the football players, um, and you can argue whether they should be allowed to do this or not, but they're not. And they are not allowed to sell uh, their signature memorabilia that they have won, anything to make a profit. You cannot make a profit when you're in college. And so some of the Ohio State players did this to get free tattoos, uh, which is kind of ridiculous. Uh, but they are giving away signatures, they are giving away old trophies to this tattoo shop to get free tattoos, and then other people remember Johnny Manziel and some of that with the money to get to get money to use their position for their own gain. It's kind of like when you're in college and there's a girl that really likes you. And so you let her do your homework and wash your clothes, fold your socks, you borrow money from her, and then I don't pay her back. No, I'm just joking. (laughs) That's not a real story. Maybe. A little bit of it is. (laughs) Right? You use your position to get what you want. We do it all the time. You know, in areas of your life, you use your position to get what you want. Sometimes that's not a bad thing, but a lot of times it's always for your self-interest. And so this is probably what James and John start to do. They said, hey, Jesus, we need you to do something for us. So if you'd put that back up, Nancy. Then James and John, the son of Zebedee, came to him. Teacher, they said, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. Jesus doesn't really take the bait. He doesn't say, sure, you got it. Just, you know, he says, what do you want me to do for you? What do you want me to do for you? On a little bit of a side note, God's always asking that. Even in my own life, I think in your life, God is asking, what do you want me to do for you? We get so many passages in Scripture, actually, that says that you don't have because you haven't asked. God is constantly asking, what do you want? He's constantly listening, waiting for you to ask. But the flip side of that, which then sometimes we forget when we ask for kind of outlandish, self-centered things, is what you find in James. It says in James 4.3, you ask and you don't receive because you ask wrongly. You spend it on your passions. You ask God and say, God, I I heard the other day that you're asking, What do I want? I hear that if I seek, you know, I'll find you, knock and it'll be answered, you know, ask and I'll receive. You know, why don't I have a Lamborghini sitting in my garage? I don't understand. We ask wrongly because we ask for our own passions, our own desires. James and John are going down this road. And you'll see kind of where it gets them. So, Jesus asked them, you know, what do you want me to do? What do you want me to do for you? Another little rabbit trail. Right after this, you know, he asked that exact same question to a blind man. What do you want me to do for you? The blind man says, I want to be able to see. And it says that his faith, because of your faith, he heals them. But, James and John say this. They replied, let one of us sit at your right and the other at your left in your glory. They replied, let one of us sit at your right and the other at your left in your glory. Let's talk about that for a little bit. James and John have this inside connection with Jesus. John is the one that Jesus loves. And so they go to him and they say, we need something for you. Kind of promise that you'll say yes to us. Remember, this is right after he said he's gonna die. And then they go, we want to sit at your right and left hand in your glory. Now we're gonna bash him in a second for that. This is kind of where this is going. But before we do that, I think there's kind of an important note to take They're recognizing Jesus' greatness, right? They're recognizing, even in the misconception of maybe, you know, he's going to rule this kingdom, right? He's going to overthrow the Romans. Even in their misconceptions, if that was it, even kind of maybe in their rudeness for asking this, they are realizing, okay, that he has something about him, some sort of power. He's going to be in glory, right? There's going to be a glory, and we want to connect ourselves to him. Have you ever went to a restaurant with a large group of friends? And as you start to shuffle in the door and the, the waitress, right, takes you to sit down, you start thinking about where you want to sit, And you want to sit when you're in a large group of friends next to kind of that most charismatic person, right? The one that's always going to be talking, that telling the stories, making the jokes. And because if you don't, where do you end up? At the end of the table, like, what, what did he say? What did he say? You know, wanting to add in the conversation, but you're not next to him, so you can't add in. And so as you come into the door, you kind of think, okay, I need to be right behind them. And then right when they sit, I'm going to sit down on either side of them. Or if they sit down, maybe I'll sit right across from them and I'll scooch everybody off. This is what we do. Don't act like you've never done that before. You're like, no, no, never. Everybody wants to sit by me. If you don't, you end up on the side, right, in the place you don't want to be. I want to be next to the most important person. I want to be with them. They're going to make this experience better. At some level... This is what James and John are doing. They're recognizing the greatness, okay, maybe the divinity of Jesus, and going, I want to be next to you in your glory. Whether that, they were thinking in heaven or on earth, they're recognizing that. So, now we'll bash them. So, they get that part right. Um, they see, you know, I want to be next to them, um, Let me give you one more example of this as I found this semi-funny. At the end of Forrest Gump, okay, how many of you have seen Forrest Gump? Yeah, okay. At the end of Forrest Gump, how does Forrest make all of his money? Oh, Apple stock, right? He takes the money that he's earned from the Bubba Gump Shrimp Company, right, and he gets the letter in the mail and it has the big Apple logo, Because Captain, was it Dan? Captain Dan invested our money, our earnings, into Apple stock. And so we don't need to worry about money anymore. So there's all sorts of people then that take that and start to run with that. What would that really look like? Let me give you the number. Okay. If they would have only invested $5,000. If you would have invested $5,000 when the Apple first went public... Okay, when they first offered stock, if you would have put in five grand over the last you know 25 years, 35 years, that stock, if you would have kept putting the money back from the earnings and the dividends and everything else, would be worth one point five million dollars today. If you would have put five thousand, it would have been worth one point five roughly. No, I'm no mathematician or anything. This is what I found online, so don't call me up and go, actually, it's 1.47, okay? You would be rich if you put in five grand in 1980 when that was first offered. But they, people take it even farther, and they said that if, okay, once again, if Forrest Gump was, if this was real, him and Captain Dan invested whenever the movie was supposed to take place before Apple went public, and they were at the ground floor when they were first looking for investors for $500,000, I think it was, if they would have invested $140,000, that's somebody said, oh, what you would have made from you know, shrimping. I don't know how they came up with that number. But that's the excess from shrimping, $140,000. If they would have been on the ground floor, that would be worth today $11 billion dollars. If you see something that is great, something that is spectacular, you want to put yourself in it. You want to be next to it. You want to get in on the ground level, right? They have other stats. If you would have bought stock in Apple instead of every new piece of software that comes out, by this point, you'd be a millionaire if you would have always invested instead of buying an iPhone, an iPod, an iPad, you would have constantly just put it in there, you'd be a millionaire right now. It's crazy. All that to point to, if you see something great, and they wanted, the disciples saw something great, they wanted to be in it. They wanted to be involved. So that's the good part. All right, now we'll continue. So they say this to Jesus, um, and then this is his response. Nancy, if you put that back up. They ask, can we sit at your left and at your right hand in your glory? And Jesus said, you don't know what you are asking. Can you drink the cup I drink or be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with? They answer, we can. So let's talk about this for a little bit. James and John come to Jesus. They try to use their position and ask for a spot of glory, a spot that is of honor. The pick me, pick me first. Please pick me, right? The little junior high kid that puts his shoulders out, steps up, you know. Pick me, pick me. The disciples ask Jesus, can we sit at your left and at your right? The spots of glory, the spot of authority, the spot of honor. We want to sit right next to you. And Jesus said, you don't know what you're asking. Can you drink my cup? Can you be baptized with the baptism I am going to be baptized with? Do you guys remember a couple months ago when we did our Easter series um, with all the chalices, the cups that were sitting up here? Do you remember the Good Friday service for those that were here and how we picked that cup up and we set it outside on that cross because that was the cup of wrath that we never had to drink. That was the cup that was never for us that Jesus took, that cup of pain and suffering that he took. You know, when you are baptized, you know the symbolism of baptism is that when you go into the water, it's a death, right? And as you raise back out, it's a resurrection. Jesus, in, in the way that maybe they didn't understand, said, are you willing to have this pain? Are you willing to have this sacrifice? Are you willing to take this? Are you willing to die? And James and John, sons of thunder, yes. Absolutely we can drink that cup. Absolutely we can be baptized. More than likely they have no idea what he's talking about. They have no idea what he's meaning. Can we drink the cup with you at Passover? Yeah, I'll sit with you at Passover. Can we be baptized? Yeah, John the Baptist can dunk us. You know, I can do that. I can ride with you. I can do all this with you. We can do this. If that's what it takes to get those two seats, we're in. I can see Jesus just sitting there, right? Probably shaking his head. So Jesus goes, you don't know. You don't understand. Nancy, if you want to put that back up. Um, can you drink the cup I drink or be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with? We can, they answered. And Jesus said to them, you will drink the cup I drink and be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with. But to sit at my right or left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared. He says, you think you're gonna be able to do this and in fact, eventually you will. You will. Once again, kind of hold on to that. That's going to be the ending of our story. You're, you actually are going to drink this. You actually are going to be baptized. But you don't know what you're, you're answering so quickly to. You don't understand the pain that's going to, it's going to take. Remember Jesus is praying? What does he ask God for? If you're willing, would you take this cup away? Even Jesus who was willing to die and sacrifice, come down in all of humanity, was asking God, hey, you know, if it's your will, could this cup pass from me? This is a hard cup to drink. This isn't gonna go down smooth, right? I don't know if I can do this. But ultimately, he says, your will be done. And so he says to James and John, you think you know what you're saying yes to, but you don't. Though in fact, in a weird twist, you will drink this cup and you will be baptized with me. And we'll talk about that at the end. So the rest of the disciples hear what James and John have just asked for. That James and John have went to Jesus and said, can we sit at your left and your right? Now they don't applaud them For asking, they don't say, Oh, I wish I would have asked first. They basically get, in my notes, ticked off. They're upset. Nancy, if you want to put that up there, I think in the NIV. When the 10 heard about this, they became indignant with James and John. They're outraged, they're mad. How could you ask for this? And it, it's not implied that they're upset that the timing was wrong. Okay? Right? There is a place where you are upset with someone for asking something because the timing is wrong. What's really being implied that they are upset because you asked for it and we all want that spot. And because we all know you get to do extra things with Jesus, he, you know, he actually might answer yes to you and now we won't have that spot. This is, this is kind of a little morbid, but it's like going up to your grandparents, to your parents when you know they're gonna die and say, hey, I really like your house. I know you said you're gonna die tomorrow or at least pretty soon. Can I have it? The rest of the cousins, the siblings, they don't need it. I would really like the house and the cars and the Apple stock. <laughs> Right? This is essentially what they're coming up and asking Jesus. He's just predicted his death. And now they come and they say, hey, can we get those two seats that we really want? And the other ten are furious with James and John. Well, look at these guys. Once again, sons of thunder going up and asking Jesus. Right? They're probably all thinking that spot was reserved for me. I didn't ask them. I didn't ask them for the right Hand of God, you know, sitting at the right hand of him. But I was expecting that's where I'd be. I was expecting that I was gonna get that honor, that I was gonna get that glory, that I was gonna get that prestige. Have you ever done that maybe with work? A promotion is available and someone beats you to it and they ask the boss straight out, Hey, I want this spot. He wasn't supposed to ask for that yet. Like That that wasn't politically correct. He can't do that. Uh, That's going to be my spot. And we get offended. And that's what happened with the disciples. They get offended that James and John asked for the spots of honor, the spots of glory. And so Jesus, by this point, I can just imagine, is fed up with his disciples. And often in the Bible, you find kind of he lets them go down this, this trail for a little while. And then he finally goes, look. Here's the deal. Nancy, if you want to put up the last section. When the 10 heard about this, they became indignant with James and John. Jesus called them together and said, "You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be a slave." Of all. It goes on in 45 to say, if I can find it, he finishes with this For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Stop bickering, stop arguing. Listen up. Here's the deal. These two two sons of thunders, they're not getting these seats. These seats are for other people that are being prepared. That's kind of God's choice. I'm not going to give them that seat because of some special connection that they have with me. This kingdom is different. This kingdom is different than the Gentiles, meaning everyone else. Think of our society. This is no different. If you're the boss, right, right? You make sure people know you're the boss, right? You make sure that they treat you with respect, authority. There's a proper channel. You can't talk to me. You're not at my level. You might not ever say that, but that's a lot of times how things work, right? If you're an authority, right, you make sure and you let people know. That's going on then as well. You use your power for yourself. And Jesus said, that's not how we do things. That's not how this kingdom's done, This is different. If you want want to be the greatest, you, you gotta be a servant. You have to be a slave. This is what he tells the 12 disciples after they're bickering about who's gonna get the seat of honor. Here's my most fascinating point I took from this. As I'm studying it, you know, occasionally, or a lot of times, I'll I'll look up some of the key words and look at their root history. One of the histories for the the word serve, to be a servant, literally means a person that brings food to your table. Right? A waiter, a server. I did this for um, eight, nine years. Uh, I I waited tables uh, at different restaurants. And you would have to, you know, go up to a table. And it didn't matter who was there. You would have to serve them. It was great when they were nice people. Sometimes I would even, you want to know a little tip? If you ever tip your waiter beforehand and you say there's more coming, they will give you the best service ever. And so I loved people like that. I loved when they were polite. And I would say, oh, sorry, I'm busy. I'll be right back. And they say, no problem. You bring them their drinks. Thank you very much. It's fun to wait on those people, to serve those people. But guess what? My job was a server, and so even when I got people that were rude, mean, right, that called my manager over and said, this guy, you should fire him, guess what? I still had to bring them out their pork chop and ask them if they want any sauce with it. Right, It doesn't matter. I still had to say, would you like a refill on that water? Can I put more ice in that? Can I get you a napkin? Do you want a doggy bag? Would you like coffee, dessert? Because that was my job. I didn't get to pick and choose who I served. They sat down and I served them. I waited on them. This is what hit me in this. In that when Jesus, would you put that up again, Nancy? Instead whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant and whoever wants to be first must be your must be slave of all. It's not a choice that you just must serve but you actually must be the servant. You don't just get to pick and choose that I'm going to serve you or not. It's that is your very identity is the servant and the slave. Do you see that? That to me was astounding. Because I love to pick and choose who I serve. Don't get me wrong, serving feels great sometimes, especially if I think that person deserves it. But if you've messed up, I don't want to serve you. To be completely honest, this hits me every time I walk by somebody that's homeless, and I've heard people's stories of how, you know, they've, it wasn't any of their fault, but every time I walk past somebody that's homeless, I always think, bad decisions, your fault. You're in there because of what you chose to do. Money, forget it, right? Should have kept a job. Should have worked hard. I serve and give money to those that just by kind of happenstance that they didn't have the opportunity. Those are the people I'll give it to. But if you had opportunity and I think you have, I'm not gonna serve you. I'm telling you, that's what comes up in me every time I walk by somebody that's homeless, that I think it's their fault and they don't deserve for me to serve them. We do this all the time, though. You do this with your spouse when they wrong you. I don't deserve to serve you. What, look what you did to me. Do this at, with people at work. Oh, you're behind in your work. You need help. Forget it. You shouldn't have been goofing off. You shouldn't have left early and went golfing. You're getting what you deserve. That's what that's what boils up in me. You get what you deserve. But Jesus does lay a, a pretty strong contradiction to that. That that's not how it's done. It's actually you are the servant. You don't get the choice. You have to serve. You have to be the slave. That is your identity because, and he finishes, right? He says, even the son of man, talking about himself and all all of his humanity, I didn't come to be served. I came as the servant. I came to serve. That's what I came to do and to lay my life down as a ransom for many. This is what he tells the disciples. This is what he's probably telling me and you you don't get a choice in the service. You don't get a choice on who you're gonna wait on. If that happened at the restaurant, right, half the people would never be taken care of. But when you, when you sign that contract for your job, when you said, this is the identity I'm taking, then whoever sits down at this table, I'm gonna serve them to the best of my ability because that's my job. And that to me was kind of striking this week That that's my job as a Christ follower, one who follows the example of Christ, that my example was a servant, was a slave, one who laid his life down, and that's what I'm supposed to replicate. Not just when I feel like it or if you deserve it, but for all. If the band, if you want to come up, Here's my favorite part now of the whole story. Besides that really tidbit that, I don't know, resonated with me this week, that after this whole story's done um, and he's kind of scolded the disciples, scolded James and John, um, scolded them for for their actions, uh, for what they think on how to get ahead, we still haven't really dissected the part that it says you will drink this cup And you will be baptized in this baptism. And as we look of what happens to the disciples, and specifically to James and John, let me read a couple things to you, what what ends up happening to them later after the resurrection, after Jesus ascends. They start to go out, right? That's the great commission Jesus left, right? As he ascended, go out into like all nations, Right? Preaching, baptizing people, making disciples. And so after we get Pentecost, after the Holy Spirit comes, we find that these disciples, apostles, are sent out and they start to spread the word. And James and John are right at the forefront of that. And the best part that I like is that do you know who the the first disciple who's martyred in the Bible? James. Right? James ends up being baptized in death, right? For what he believed. You will, you will die. You are going to end up being baptized. You don't know what I'm saying right now, but years go by and James is actually martyred. Now, John, the one he loved, ends up becoming the apostle who writes all about love. He kind of drops the sons of thunder, and he becomes known as the apostle of love. He writes probably the Gospel of John, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, and Revelation. And he becomes known as the apostle of love. His identity starts, no, it doesn't start, it does change. From this guy who was forceful and, 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 and rash at times, maybe angry, not quite getting it, to someone that gets it and talks all about love. But he too, even though he isn't martyred, it says that he suffers uh, huge. That at one tradition is that he is actually put in a boiling vat of oil, and he's brought out perfectly fine. And because he won't stop preaching is why they end up sending him to Patmos where he writes Revelation because there is nobody there for you to preach to. John also has to witness everyone, most likely of the disciples, being martyred. Go through, go Google search, find out how they were martyred. Horrific, horrific. And John, being friends with all of them, being the brother of James, has to watch that and endure and suffer. He has to drink that cup. He didn't know it at the time, but even that statement of we can, even when we don't know what we're answering, when God asks us to do something and we still say yes, even when we don't fully understand it, like God completes that. That's awesome to me, that even in all of my misunderstandings, all of my shortcomings, he changes people's identities all throughout the Bible, And it starts with them being willing. It starts with them saying, I can, I will. I don't know what I'm saying yes to, but I believe that you will be in glory. I believe this, and so yes. And so it ends up happening. It's a very cool story of of two guys that didn't get it. But at the end, they get counted, right, for suffering for Christ. They get counted as the apostle of love the one who actually uh, wrote all about love. That to me is reassuring, encouraging. So I hope for you, you know, as, as we, we're gonna sing, we always try to sing songs that are going to uh, be statements. At least when, when I'm doing, I'm gonna talk to Tim and hey, what are you ending with? I love ending with a song that is a proclamation of, yes, I will follow, yes, I will surrender. And so that's what we're gonna sing this morning. So I hope that you do that. Maybe you don't understand it fully. Maybe you don't understand exactly what it entails to surrender to Christ. But it's the start. It's the beginning. they saying, I do see greatness. I, I think I do believe that you're God. And, and yes, I, I want to surrender. I want to be a servant. So would you stand and sing with us as we close?